invite you to turn to our scripture passage today, which is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you've been with us these past few weeks, uh, you know we've been doing a series. Uh, we've read uh, those 11 verses um, from Philippians 2 each week, and today we are focusing on verses uh, 9 through 11, so the last section, but I'm going to read the whole passage. So starting in verse 1, Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, you know our hearts. You know uh, the burdens, the baggage, the thoughts, the distractions, the joys, the sadness that everyone here is carrying with them at this moment. And we pray, Lord, that through the power of your word and your spirit working with your word, that you would shine your light into every one of our hearts to show us the supremacy of Christ, even in his humility. Father, speak to us today and build us up so that each and every one of us would look more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. It was uh, last Sunday that the World Cup ended, and I don't watch soccer or mini sports for that matter, but I would watch the highlight reels of many of the important World Cup games. And I quickly found myself captivated uh, by Lionel Messi, who is the star from the Argentine squad. Probably many of you have even heard his name, uh, even if you don't watch anything about soccer. And what captivated me as I watched him was just how effortless he made it work. So in the final shootout last Sunday between France and Argentina, his kicks were distinct from all of the other soccer players. Many of the players seemed to rely on rocketing the ball as fast as they could towards the net, but Messi was very different. It, it almost looked like he would kind of saunder or meander up towards the ball and with ease kick it, but almost tapped it to the exact place that the goalkeeper was not expecting. He, he had some way of getting the goalkeeper to think that the ball would go this way and then effortlessly just tapped it in right over here. And it was almost like he was trying to see how slow he could hit the ball and still score a goal. And so I watched a number of highlight reels of him on YouTube. Uh, and, and besides his amazing footwork and, and ability to just his speed when he needed it, that effortless style still shone through. He, he seemed to know how to just 
lob the ball just right so it would go inches above the goalkeeper's fingers and yet drop in time to make it right into the net. He seemed to be able to weave the ball uh, between several defenders and land it right in the goal. And it was amazing to watch. And with his World Cup win, many people were declaring Lionel Messi to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And if you've watched any of the news since then for his performance, he was highly exalted. I heard one interview of there's many shrines that have been set up in Argentina for this soccer player. People from every continent were praising his name. Many of some of our African Kenyan friends I saw were raving about Lionel Messi. All around the globe, people were speaking about him. And how did he get there? Well, certainly it was through raw talent and countless hours of practice, but perhaps most importantly, he had a career of incredible performances. He was continually playing on the world stage in packed stadiums where millions of people could watch him. He was seen by many. But what was interesting as I thought about this is how that contrasted with Jesus. Jesus, on one hand, had, we could say, a lot of raw talent. He could do amazing things if he wanted to, but he was less concerned about performing in a packed stadium. In fact, his family got frustrated with the strategy in John 7, 4. They tell Jesus, you can't become famous if you keep hiding like this. You need to show yourself to the world. Jesus was something of an anti-celebrity. He chose a path of humility all the way to his dying breath. And yet that path that from the world's perspective looked like Jesus was up here at one point when he had crowds following him, but he continually made bad decisions until one day he ended up by himself dying on a cross and it looked like a failure. But Jesus knew something that the rest of us didn't, that that path that ended in a dark tomb was actually the specific path to the greatest glory. This is the last sermon in our series called The Humility of God, and we've been examining Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And what I want you to remember is the same thing I've been repeating every week here, that humility is God's answer to human power. Humility is God's answer to human power. And we're going to just look at it for two points. First, the path of humility, and then second, the exaltation of Christ. So first, the path of humility. And I want you to notice how verse 9 begins with that word, therefore. Now, words like therefore are often important because they link sections of thought together. They kind of give us the conclusion of everything that's been written thus far. Here's why it matters. And so what does Paul, the author of this letter, say? Here's the conclusion, or why it matters, of all the stuff that we've looked at in verses 1 through 8. Here's why it matters. God then exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. Now, if you didn't know anything that came in those first verses, and all you knew is this is what God did for Christ. He exalted him above everyone. What would you just kind of automatically think was the reason for that exaltation? Well, why is anyone named the goat? because of their incredible performance. They win the World Cup. They bring home a record number of gold medals. But what are the reasons that God exalted Christ? Going back to verses 7 and 8, He made Himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Now, humans don't exalt people that look like losers dying on a cross. We like winners. We exalt people that take home the trophy. But apparently, God's measure of success looks different than ours. That's why this therefore is so important. It specifically links Christ's humiliation to his exaltation. And think about that. that, that it is saying that because this happened, this is why Christ was exalted. Christ's exaltation wasn't just like a consolation prize. It, it wasn't like the Father, God the Father said to Jesus, you know what? You had a pretty tough life on earth. Things didn't work out too well for you there. You've suffered a lot. You deserve a nice, easy retirement. It's not that God said to Jesus, huh, I thought they would like you more than they did. You know, I thought things would turn out differently. You, need, you deserve a long vacation by the sea. No, this passage tells us something stronger, something incredible, actually, when you think about it, that it is because Christ chose the path of humility that God then exalted him above everybody else. It means that God defines or measures success differently than every one of us. God isn't looking at how many World Cup games you win, how many medals you have around your neck. His grading scale is vastly different than ours. If you want the greatest prize from God, it's found in an often lonely path of humility. This shows us something deep about who God is, that humility was invented in heaven. Humility didn't start with someone being humiliated. Humility started when God, of his own free will, decided to come down to earth, born as a baby, and subject himself to other sinners in a world that he had made. The infinite, eternal, all-knowing, ever-present God is also a humble God. I mean, let your, try to wrap your minds around that. The one person who actually has every reason to not be humble, humility is actually core to who he is. So what path are you pursuing in your life? When you pull out the map of your life plan, what trail are you following? What peak are you trying to climb? Does it look more like the path of a World Cup soccer player? Or is it a path that maybe to the rest of the world looks like it's going nowhere? Perhaps even only ends in a dark tomb. But it's a path of humility. How are you trying to define success in your life? By what you've achieved? How many wonderful things you've done? Even how much maybe you've done for God? How much you have? God cares about all of that stuff a lot less than you do and others do. The people that God has his eye on are those people who are walking the path of humility. And what does humility look like? Well, I, I love this story from John 13. I, I've shared it with a number of you as we've gone through John. It's Jesus last night with his disciples. It's a moment, of any moment, that Jesus could deserve to say, I need some me time right now. I'm tired of taking care of you guys. I'm about to deal with something really hard. 
I just need to take care of myself right now. But instead of that, Jesus shows humility. So he's with his disciples about to have that last supper. And before they eat, he stands up from the table and ties a white cloth around his waist. He dresses the part of a servant. And then he gets down on his knees and he begins to wash his disciples' feet one by one. Now, foot washing, as probably you know, was customary back then. People's feet got dirty. They wore sandals in a, in a sandy place. And so to keep from tracking dirt all around your house, you'd have your feet washed uh, when you entered or at the beginning of the meal. And Jesus takes that role. Now, that was a role that you usually gave to the lowest servant. It's not exactly uh, something you wanted to wash other people's feet. If you had Jewish servants, you actually couldn't ask a Jewish servant to wash your guest's feet. It was considered too demeaning for any Jew to do, even if they were a slave. But here, what was a demeaning job, something considered too demeaning for a Jew, is not too demeaning for the Son of God to do. And he goes around taking their feet in his hands, and he washes them. And when he gets to Peter, who he knows in just a few hours is going to deny him three times, he still gets down on his knees and he washes his feet. It's really hard to do something humble, to be humble, to do something even humiliating to someone you know is about to reject you in a few hours. Then he gets to Judas and he washes his feet even though he knows in just a few hours Jesus is going to leave that meal and turn him into the authorities and send him to his death. It's almost impossible to get down on your knees and do something humbling for someone you know is about to betray you and get you killed. And yet there is Jesus, dressed like a servant, on his knees, caring for Judas' feet. And he doesn't do it, you know, as probably some of us did if we had to. He says, well, Judas, I see you have a lot of calluses here. This might hurt a little bit. I've got to get the extra rough sandpaper. I'm going to make you feel it, even though if I've got to do this, I'm not going to make it fun. No, with tenderness and love, Jesus bows down like a servant before the person who is about to betray him and washes his feet. Do you see that breathtaking humility? of our God, the God who holds everything together, who doesn't need to do anything, chooses to get down on his knees. And it's like God the Father looks down at Jesus on his knees before his enemies, and he says, that is what winning looks like in my book. Because Jesus walked that path, I will exalt him above all creation. What is it that you think winning looks like? What are you striving for in your life? What path are you walking on? Is it one that God takes notice of? The path of humility? Or is it the one that everyone else takes notice of? Because you really want to be seen as a performer before them. Are you wrapped up in all the things you've done? All the things you've achieved? The things you're trying to achieve? the accolades you can win? Or are you showing that humility of Jesus wherever God would call you? It's not too hard to be humble with someone else who's humble. 
it's almost impossible to be humble with your enemies, which is exactly what Christ does. Are you showing a humility towards people you don't like, towards people who it's really hard to love? That is the humility of Christ. And that is tough. And it might look like weakness. You think, if I'm humble, if I get down on my knees and wash their feet, whatever that looks like, they'll take advantage of me. They'll hurt me. They'll do this. But remember, there was Jesus on his knees before the person who would lead him to his death, washing his feet. And God saw him. And God took care of him. And God exalted him in the end and showed that he cares for the humble of heart. This leads us then to our second point, the exaltation of Christ. Because Christ was on that path of humility, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that was above every name. So what does all this mean? Well, first, think of any sports star, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players and athletes of all time. He is so good that there's an entire line of shoes named after him, right? Air Jordans. His name is exalted. People want his name on their products. People will pay more money for his name on their shoes. He is wanted. His name is exalted. People will pay for it. That's what this is getting at here in Colossians. Celebrities make a ton of money off endorsements because in the end, We want to be like Mike. If I wear those clothes or drink these drinks or do the same things they do, maybe I can tap into some of that power and energy that they have. Their name is exalted and we want to get in on it. And that is what God has done for Jesus. He has given him a name that is above every name. A name that if people recognized its worth, they would pay billions of dollars to put it on their products. Or verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. After any global sports tournament, there's always a debate about whether the star of that tournament is the goat, the greatest of all time, which it sounds really funny saying this in a sermon. I I don't know where that expression came from, goat. I never considered a goat an animal I aspired to. But, But what do we do for a goat? We buy stuff with their name on it. We post pictures. We create artwork commemorating them. In that sense, we bend the knee to say this person is the greatest. In, in Argentina, these shrines to Lionel Messi, they are bending their knee. He is the greatest soccer or football player in the world. But Jesus ends all of those debates Because the text here says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth before Jesus. There is no one greater in the past, no one greater in the present, no one greater to come than Jesus. He is the true goat. And today, there's debates about things like this. Well, would Pele beat Messi? Would Jordan overtake LeBron? But here, there is no debate with Jesus. Everyone, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, will one day agree that Jesus is the greatest, and there will be no arguing about it, because it will be clear to everyone. Verse 11, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what we see, how do you get to that point? How do you get to that exaltation where every tongue acknowledges it? 
It is the path of humility that is the path to glory. That not everything is what it seems in this world. That quick riches, big bank accounts, lots of awards, trophies, will one day fade and be forgotten and ground to dust. But when Christ was humiliated, as he hung limp on that cross, and what looked like a giant failure to so many people, that in God's perspective, he was actually the closest to glory that he had ever been. God rewrites the rules of what is successful and what would last. There's a couple other things I want to unpack, and then I'm going to bring it all together. First, we should note there's this aspect of what we sometimes call the, the already and then the not yet. So verse 9, it says that God has exalted Christ to the highest place. This is something that has already happened. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But then there's a shift in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is speaking of a time that has not yet happened. So we're living in these in-between times where Christ is exalted, and yet not everyone has eyes to see it, but one day everyone will see it. Second thing I want you to see, Christ is Lord of everything. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan, that at the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So God's plan is to take everything in heaven and on earth and to merge it into one unity, one beautiful harmony of glory, that earth will become heavenly. There will be no more tension that you feel every single day as you are pulled down with sickness, discouragement, depression, broken families, life in a sinful world. But one day, what is beautiful about heaven will fully break out on earth and Christ will finish his work of uniting all things. So there is not even a shadow of sin left in our world. But we wait for that day. And the path to that day is not the one that maybe is the obvious path, the high road to ease, the high road to riches, the high road to glory, but it is a path that starts in a manger, leads to a cross, goes to a tomb, and then experiences the glory of resurrection. So do you have eyes to see things the way God sees them? Or are you wrapped up in the way that the world sees everything? What does this mean for all of us? Remember back in verse 5 when we started off this series, in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If you peek down to verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. What Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian, your mind needs to be the mind of Jesus. What does that look like? You show humility with other people. You continue to let that mind of Christ fill out your thinking. You don't grumble or you argue or complain. One, you have a life that doesn't avoid the cross, but embraces that as the best way. You have a mind of humility towards others. 
not trying to always be better than them or to put them down or to see them in the worst possible light. And what is the only way to have that mindset of Christ? Is to look to Christ in faith, to see him as your glory and your reward, to see him as the one who has lived that perfect life for you and died that death with your sins, leaving them in the grave, and that you have been now united to Christ through his spirit, and the power of Christ is in you by faith alone, transforming you from the inside out, so that you start to have the eyes of Christ to see the things that will last. To embrace a life of humility, to not be so worried about being seen as a winner by the rest of the world, but be willing to walk that sometimes lonely path of Jesus, a path that is sometimes headed in the opposite direction of everybody else, but ends up somewhere so much more beautiful and longer lasting than where everyone else is headed. It's Christmas today. Don't let today go by without thinking of its true significance, that Christ gave up all of the privileges of heaven and the life of ease there to be born in humility, to taste sickness, and to suffer death, even death on a cross. Do you find yourself suffering right now? Is life really hard? Do you feel like you're in an eternal winter without any signs of spring? Does it feel like you've been traveling in the valley of the shadow of death for months or years on end? That's hard. It's a hard place to be. But know that Christ is with you, that his steps have gone before you, and that there is something way better for you waiting at the end of that, that you have not lost the way, but you're probably on the way, and you just have to have that faith to see that there is a glorious future and Christ will ensure that you get there. There's joy coming in the morning. Next week's New Year's. Good time to step back, assess the year, what you've done. Think of goals for the next year. What are the goals you're gonna set for this next year? Are you just gonna choose what is easy? You're gonna primarily focus on what will make you look successful, what will give you recognition, what maybe will lead to the least discomfort? Have you bought into what the world says is success? Whose approval do you really want? Take some time to think about that. What am I striving for? What am I living for? Who do I really want to say, you did a good job? What assumptions have you made about what will make you successful or not? And these things that we so buy into, our whole culture is, you know, brainwashes us into saying, you need this, you need that, you need that, and it seeps into us without us even realizing it. But one day, they'll be gone. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Is what you're pursuing now, what you are living and planning for, will that make a difference in a decade? Maybe it will. What about in a century? What about in a millennium? 
The world doesn't see it, but the life of humility, the life walked on that path towards Christ, the life that follows Christ and desires Him more than anything else and trusts in Him when it's really hard, is not a life lived in vain. But one day, not a drop of your suffering will have been wasted. Not an ounce of your tears that you've cried will be lost. But God, through Christ, will exalt you with Him and wipe away every tear and say it's okay and lead you into a glorious destiny where everything will be bright and beautiful and perfect. And that's where we're headed if we have eyes to see it and the faith to walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the courage and the faith to walk on that path, which can be so, so hard. And it can feel like we're doing things so differently from everybody else. Lord, we pray that our church would be a community of people that are walking on that path together, that we would encourage each other when it gets hard, that we would pick one another up when we fall, that we would carry one another's burdens when it gets really heavy. We pray that you would help us individually to have faith to see that that path of Christ is our path and that what is at the end of that even though it's on the other side of a darkness we cannot see through, is worth it. And Christ will take us there. And so we pray all these things in his name. Amen.